Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I have the real pleasure to talk to the author of How Solidarity Works for Welfare, Subnationalism and Social Development in India. The book is published by Cambridge University Press in 2015, and the author is Prerna Singh. Prerna, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Heath. Thank you. Such a pleasure to have you on. I know you've been traveling around a lot so thanks for your time. Thanks for the interesting book. And, and before we get to talking about it, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I am presently the Mahatma Gandhi Assistant Professor of Political Science and International Studies at Brown University and a faculty fellow at the Watson Institute, also at Brown. I was previously an assistant professor in the Department of Government at Harvard University, and I finished my PhD, um, from which the book uh, it basically emerged uh, at Princeton University. And I work around questions of welfare and the political economy of development in South Asia and East Asia, and also work on questions of identity politics, ethnicity, and nationalism. And it's a real pleasure to be here today, so thank you for having me. Absolutely. This is an intimidating book, not because of its subject matter or because of its uh, writing style, both of which are very accessible, but because it's almost like five books in one. Uh, What you have accomplished in a relatively short book is really quite remarkable. The number of methods and and angles into this very interesting subject is is just um, so very impressive. And, and, And for those reasons, I've been looking forward to talking to you about the book. Let's start with start with some just terminology because what I think is is in part so impressive about the book is how novel you come out some concepts. So let's start with one of the first ones, one of the ti- one of the uh, uh, terms that's in your title, mm-hmm. and that is what is subnationalism, and and Im- importantly in that is um, how is it how are you distinguishing this from uh, partisanship, um, ethnic or religious ties. Tell us about that that idea of subnationalism. Sure, and thank you for asking me. Um, it's not, you know, it's interesting that you began by asking me about subnationalism because it's not a term that I came to naturally. I was actually looking and um, for a concept uh, that would allow me to basically get at what was, in essence, the identification or aspiration for a self-governing homeland, which was located within the boundaries of a sovereign country. And, you know, the ideology and movement of which incorporated both cultural and political dimensions. So really, you know, when I think of subnationalism, I think of people with a belief in a shared past, a common culture, which is based often, but not always on language, and who identify with or desire the creation of and control over a unit within a sovereign country that corresponds to a territory that they believe, um, you know, real or imagined, belong to their forebears. And in a sense, you might see how this conceptualization maps quite closely onto some of the most influential understandings of nationalism. And in a sense, they are both imagined communities, and they're both united by this criteria 
which distinguishes them um, to get to your question of how this is differentiated from other types of collective identities, such as ethnicity, the critical thing that I think distinguishes them is this the political aspect of this, the association with political self-determination, which isn't necessarily, um, isn't the case with ethnic identities such as race or religion or tribe or even um, with gender or class. But what distinguishes a sub-nation from a nation, um, in my understanding, is that the political demands of nations necessarily involve a demand for sovereign statehood, while sub-nations either explicitly or are willing to settle for control of a unit within a larger sovereign country. And so sub-nationalism is really the kind of attack, is, is is that um, is that feeling, and to me, more than anything else, the crux of it is really this feeling of an affective attachment, a feeling of a sense of of solidarity, of weeness, of oneness that corresponds uh, to a political administrative unit that's located within a larger state. Now, you argue, and and quite provocatively, that a strong subnational identity is good for social welfare. Now, how does this work exactly? This seems to run counter to, to what we might expect. So talk a little bit about uh, what, what you think of as social welfare and why this, this sort of mechanically is connected to subnationalism. Sure. Um, and, you know, as I say in the book, um, I'm not at all unaware, in fact, quite the opposite, that subnationalism is really a kind of, like all collective identities, is Janus-based. But what, what, what I realized is that in most of the scholarship, it is this negative aspect that, you know, um, you also hinted at in your question that is usually emphasized. And there's this danger of subnationalism, of, of it being associated with secessionism, of external violence against an outgroup, of internal violence against, um, you know, a minority within um, a subnation. But what I found, and this, this really emerged from the historical research um, for the book. It's not something that I went into this project at all. I, I did not think I would make such an argument, was that the solidarity, the sense of collective identity, the sense of attachment that lies at the core of all collective identities, including subnationalism, can be a very important motor for social welfare. And when I think of social welfare in the book, um, specifically, I'm thinking of education and health, but I do think that the argument applies more broadly. And, it's, and you know, the crux of the argument is really quite simple. And there's a political theorist called Yuli Tamir who's described it quite nicely. And she says, it's the magic of the pronoun my. And so when we think of a political community as ours, your attitude towards that community, your sense of obligations, um, your sense of attachment, um, your sense of a of, an in, of a collective interest um, gets defined. And so I actually draw on, on the discipline both of social psychology as well as on political theory to make the argument that a collective identity basically is a very important motor for a perception of common interest and a sense of ethical ob obligations towards people that you would otherwise have a fairly reciprocal um, understanding with. And so uh, this becomes more than strangers. This becomes um, someone who you think of as one of us. And so, I mean, I, I'm happy to talk in a little bit more detail, but I basically draw both on 
on experimental work in social psychology that talks about how when people um, are motivated to think of themselves as part of a group, their attitude towards that group becomes more positive. Um, they have a greater sense of attachment. And even people from different subgroups, when they're convinced um, that they're a part of a larger overarching identity, it basically reduces the social distance and they begin it, social psychologists call it a transformation of motivation. And so the idea that self-interest that would previously have been defined only at the individual level now gets redefined at the collective level. And so that what's in the interest of the community as a whole, which include things like education and health, the provision of a public school, the provision of a public hospital, becomes something that you also think of as an individual interest. And from the liberal nationalism political theory side of things, you feel a sense of an ethical obligation towards a member of your political community. And so you think this is something that you owe them. This is something that you're obliged to do. And so the way that the argument works is that the key actors here are political elites. And so in states where political elites have a strong sense of attachment, a strong sense of weeness towards the political unit, um, those are the states in which they are more likely to push for a progressive social policy that's in the interest of the community as a whole. And I argue that in a third world developing country setting, um, this formulation of a progressive social policy is the key mechanism by which subnationalism translates into higher levels of well-being. And the, a supplementary channel is that a sense of subnationalism also encourages a greater degree of political consciousness and political involvement on the parts of the on on the part of the citizens as a whole and so it's both state action primarily but also societal action that then together translate into higher levels of education longer life expectancy reduced infant mortality and the like now you apply this argument to india and and for those not familiar with the what we might call the political geography of india I wonder if you'd describe how subnationalism or federalism in India works. What what are the units and, and, and kind of give us a little bit of a crash course on how, how this is um, is structured so that we can understand the, the data that you then collect. Sure. So India is not very different from, you know, I, I think of India as a, a large multi-ethnic federal democracy in which um, the provinces or what I call states, um, what are called states in India, usually are the they are the most significant political administrative unit for social policy making and so in the indian constitution the authority for the formulation of education and health policy rests primarily with the provincial and not the national level, making them, in a sense, the natural unit of analysis um, for someone who wants to study variations in social welfare. Now, you, you, given this, you study in depth several states in India. I wonder if you'd first share with us uh, the state that best exemplifies the case of a strong subnational solidarity and highly developed social welfare programs, then maybe we'll move on to the, the opposite case. But, but first, the, 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 the positive case. Sure. So actually, I'll, I'll be happy to talk about the positive case. Um, but before that, I thought I'd just give you a sense of, you know, so, so the, one of the reasons for choosing India um, was 
was that it really instantiates within a single country the general point that I was really struck by in the course of writing this book, which is simply where you're placed geographically has a huge has huge implications <clears throat> for your levels of well-being. And so, you know, we we commonly think of the fact that Western Europe, you know, if you live in Western Europe, you have access to a much better welfare regime than if you are, for instance, in Central Asia or Latin America. But even neighboring countries and even within the same country, the highly divergent levels of well-being um, that citizens can enjoy was something that I was struck with. So just to give you a sense of what the positive and negative cases within India look like, you know, the range from the levels enjoyed by middle-income industrialized countries on the one hand, and that's the positive cases of Tamil Nadu and Kerala, to states that fare worse than the worst performers of sub-Saharan Africa, and those are the states of UP and, and, and its neighbors that I'd be happy to talk about. And the differences are stark. So, you know, in the 1950s, the state of Bihar, which I also talk about, if you lived in Bihar, you were less than half as likely to be as literate as someone who lived in Himachal Pradesh. And because of the demographic size of India, we are really looking at, at you know, huge differences. So the state of Bihar, for instance, is larger than France. Um, Kerala, which is the positive case that I'll talk about, has a population larger than that of Canada. And until recently, um, if you were born in the state of Kerala, um, you were expected to live on average 15 years more as a woman as compared to someone born in the state of UP, which has a population larger than that of Russia. So, so you know, the positive case, the, the differences are, are actually, you know, to me, even as someone who works in India and who grew up in India, when I actually kind of realized for the first time the extent of these differences, I was, I, it was actually mind-boggling. And so to talk about the positive case a little bit, um, I have two positive cases in the book, which are both neighboring southern states in peninsular India. And the state that is actually the epitome of the, of the positive case is the state of Kerala. It's a state that a lot has been written about. People have even talked about something called the Kerala model. Um, my neighbor, actually, who's probably overhearing this conversation across the world in the Watson Institute, Patrick Heller and a lot of other people have written extensively about Kerala. So in a sense, um, I was quite intimidating and intimidated entering the field of Kerala studies because a lot has been made about this, about the positive um, welfare outcomes of the state of Kerala. But no one has made the argument that this can be traced to a strong sense of Malayali identity. Most of the scholarship on Kerala has emphasized the role of a very strong social democratic party, the Communist Party of Kerala. Um, other scholars have traced um, you know, it's, uh, it's high welfare outcomes to the importance of Christian missionaries and to an enlightened and benevolent monarchy during the colonial period. And so really the argument about how a sense of Malayali oneness has been the primary driver of Kerala's welfare miracle, in a sense, is a, is a very new argument. Now, what about the opposite case? This, uh, you, you, you referenced just, just a couple of the uh, of the other cases. Uh, maybe you can tell us just a little bit about about one of them. 
Sure. So, you know, just as in Kerala, I found that it was actually, you know, more than the Communist Party, more than the Christian missionaries. It was the fact that they had had a really strong sense of an attachment to the state. I found the opposite in the northern state of Uttar Pradesh. So to just give you a kind of hint of how this happens, the word Uttar Pradesh um, just means the northern provinces. And so it's just a really, it's just a geographic appellation. And the reason the state is called UP, which is what it's usually, it goes by its acronym, is because the state could not agree to a name. And so the constitution of India was actually held up. Every state had to come up with a name. Kerala came up with a name. In fact, the word Kerala has a deep resonance for people. And they had been, for the people of Kerala, and they had been campaigning for the creation of a state of Kerala. They had been campaigning for the naming of this as Kerala. They were previously called the state of Travancore, the state of Cochin. They had been divided across a variety of administrative units. So we're thinking of the 19, early 1950s, India's independent, and the state of UP can't come up with a name. And to me, um, it's just, um, you know, it's just an example of how fragmented this state has been. All the names of the, that it came up with, it came up with a few suggestions. And all the suggestions that it came up with were struck down by the Constitution, by the Constituent Assembly in New Delhi, because they were all names that were considered names for all of India. So, for instance, one of the names that they came up with was Hindustan. Now, Hindustan is actually, a, you could think of it as a Urdu Hindu, Hindi word for India. And so the general idea that the state of UP was called UP was because it used to be called the United Provinces by the British government. And so it was always called UP. And so, you know, it, it couldn't come up with a name. It couldn't. It had a lot of difficulty coming up with a state symbol. And I have a cartoon in the book that says, you know, finally, the political elites of UP have figured out where they come from. And it's basically a map of India shaded and it says Uttar Pradesh on it. And the general idea was that there was no sense of a regional identity, no kind of subnational affective attachment to root the people or the elites of UP to the state itself. And while a lot of elites at the time celebrated the fact that, you know, UP was India, India was UP, um, the idea, and it was, you know, demographically the most important state, and so it sent the largest number of legislators to New Delhi, until recently, all of India's prime ministers came from UP, so it has exerted a very decisive, um, decisive importance in Indian politics. But what has been not so emphasized is the huge cost that UP has borne for not having a regional sub-national identity. And so the main argument that I make, and for all of these states, I trace it historically beginning around the mid-19th century, is how in Kerala, the emergence of a strong sub-national identity was at the root of its improvements in social welfare, while in UP, to the contrary, the absence of any form of sub-national identity, and instead, initially, the attachment with India as a nation, and then with what you can think of as sub-sub-national identities, ethnic identities like caste and religion, have meant that, you know, UP's priorities have gone from national priorities to ethnic priorities. They haven't really ever been the priorities of the state. And therefore, education and health have, have really um, have been neglected. And it's been actually a, a kind of, you know, it's taken a grave human toll. Yeah, the, the, the stories that are buried within all of these stories that you just tell, as well as uh, some of the quantitative analysis you do, is just, is just so very interesting. But I wanted to take a step back uh, 
for a moment, uh, which is to think about um, sort of what to make of your findings. And I was mm-hmm. wondering, so how hard is it to change these patterns? Can subnational identity be fostered in any way if we take your findings seriously that, that subnationalism has a, is, a, is a positive ingredient in, in higher levels of social welfare? Is there anything that can be done? Sure, and 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 actually, I'm, I'm very glad you asked this question. And so, one, I mean, I did write. It's while it can be easy to be kind of pessimistic about this. One of the things that happened towards the end of my field research, which is very heartening, was the state of Bihar. So Bihar neighbors. I mentioned Bihar earlier is a state that has done quite badly, and it neighbors Uttar Pradesh. And usually, um, Bihar, Madhya Pradesh, Rajasthan, and UP were together called Bimaru States of India. Bimaru is both the acronym for all of these states and also is the Hindi word for being sick. And so the idea was that, was that these were the ailing states, the sick states of the, of the state, of the nation state. And Bihar has witnessed this remarkable turnaround um, in the last decade. And what's so interesting is this idea of how exactly you can change things around. And so Bihar witnesses the rise of a a very charismatic chief minister who basically, you know, I, I had an opportunity to interview him, interestingly, in Beijing. And he said, you know, the word Bihari, um, which is the the adjective for someone from Bihar, um, the noun for someone from Bihar rather, we used to be a cuss word. You know, if you said I was Bihari, that was basically like, you know, it was a cuss word because you were considered from being a kind of really backward um, state. And he said, I wanted to change this around. Everyone was very ashamed to be from Bihar. And there's so much that Bihar has to be proud of. So one of the reasons he was in Beijing was to kind of, you know, really own Bihar's, um, Bihar's, Bihar is the home of the Buddha. So the Buddha, for instance, um, came from Bihar. And he said, there's so much that Bihar has to be proud of. And my mission is to make the people of Bihar proud of Bihar. And so he launches this campaign, um, his electoral his election campaign revolves a lot on this proud to be Bihari. And so he initiates a lot of cultural programs. He institutes something called Bihar Day, which is a celebration of the foundation of Bihar. And uh, he institutes a literary program in Patna. He encourages a lot of artists, writers, businessmen who are from Bihar to return to Bihar in this kind of, you know, um, heroes of Bihar. And it's very interesting because he actually begins to use the term subnationalism. And so to kind of return to what does it mean? The first time I heard him use it, I really thought, you know, how is he using this word? And I realized he had a political advisor who'd written an article many decades ago in the 1980s to talk about how Bihar needed a sense of subnationalism. And so he actually goes about constructing Bihari subnationalism as a very concerted um, effort. And and so, so, you know, that to me was actually quite instructive to witness as a scholar because it really kind of was a real um, unfolding policy instantiation of something that I had been studying much more historically in the 19th century. Here was someone constructing a subnational identity in the in the mid 2000s, and so the kind of lessons that I would draw from that, um, and which I talk about in the conclusion of the book, is that. You know, the two kind of key policy implications is one, when you're decentralizing power, to be very careful about what unit you're decentralizing it to. Because some units are much, are, are much more important locuses or loci rather 
of attachment than others. And so when you're decentralizing, and I think not enough attention is paid to this, it's important to decentralize control of social policy to a unit which really means something to the people. And so, and the other thing, the kind of, you know, flip side of that is the unit that is the locus of policymaking, a lot can be done to increase popular identification with that unit. So in my case, um, in a lot of my cases, the fact that there was a common language was a very important locus of a sense of common identity. But beyond language, the idea of a cultural policy, the state of Kerala, which I just spoke about, um, is quite unique. So as I was saying, you know, one of the key takeaways from the book uh, is that social policy and cultural policy are not as separate as we have traditionally thought about them, both in political science, but also within the political arena. So the state of Kerala, which we've spoken about um, to get to this point of how it's, of how a subnational identity is created, it's not the case that Kerala always had a subnational identity, quite the contrary. It is the most ethnically diverse state in India. And uh, at the point in time when I began to study it, it actually was driven by a number of divisions. But the creation of a larger Malayali identity was a project. And the role of the agency of a number of actors is something that I think should not be underestimated. One of the things that I was quite struck by was the use of things like national days, but also festivals. So the state of Kerala, um, its two main uh, in a sense, two main pots of expenditure are social policy, but also cultural policy. So it spends a lot of money in patronizing Malayali art forms, Malayali literature, and also has constructed a state festival, which is called Onam, which is very unusual because it's not a religious festival. Most festivals in India tend to be associated primarily with one religion. The festival of Onam does not have any religious affiliation it's celebrated by all the people of Kerala. It's a Malayali festival. And the state has really done a lot to construct this festival as such. And it sponsors state-wise and, um, and, you know, quite amazing pageantry and pomp, which I had an opportunity to witness um, as a northerner who'd never really visited the South um, while I was doing field research. I was struck by this. And so the construction of the Festival of Onam is one of a number of important instances of how the subnational solidarity that we now, that, that we now associate so strongly with Kerala was created. And so I think uh, things like, you know, what you name your streets, whose statues you put on street corners, um, you know, what festivals you celebrate, uh, what, uh, what holidays you have, all of these um, are quite are quite important, and not only in themselves, but also down the line um, for welfare outcomes. And that's a link uh, that I think has not been made previously, but is a link that came out extremely strongly in my research um, on Kerala, but also on the other states, and and I think is also one that actually applies across the world. Yeah, the the book is so interesting. Again, and the title of the book. How Solidarity Works for Welfare, Subnationalism, and Social Development in India. Uh, the book was bu published by Cambridge University Press in 2015, and the author, who you've been hearing from, is Purna Singh. Purna, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Heath. I very much enjoyed speaking with you.